By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf, and as always, I'm joined by... Adam from Adamian Golf. So a few weeks ago, I successfully stalked Frank Nabilo and eventually got him on our show via Twitter stalking. And I did something similar. I stalked a PGA Tour player. Many of you know him if you're on Twitter. Sorry, X. Mike Kim, PGA Tour winner, is joining us today. Mike, thank you for responding to my tweet and coming on the show. Absolutely. Happy to be here and hopefully give some people a better understanding of golf. Yeah. So. With that, you've kind of like, you were teammates with Max Homer, right, at Cal? Okay, so I feel like you kind of picked up the Twitter torch that he passed. Max got huge on Twitter because he was just being honest and truthful for once. A lot of pro golfers aren't. They kind of just regurgitate what their sponsors tell them to say, and they're not very exciting on social media. I don't know if you'd agree with that, but you kind of came on. When did you start tweeting a bit? It wasn't that long ago, right? For a really long time, I didn't tweet at all, and I would just use it to kind of take in events here and there, and for fantasy football, probably. (laughs) Nice. Actually tweeting maybe a year and a half to two years is probably when I started thinking more about it. Nice. Well, you've exploded. I think you have to like... Yeah, I mean, uh, listen, uh, (laughs) I've been on there for almost a decade grinding my butt off and you've just surpassed my following. Adam kind of wanders in and out. He's not obsessed like I am, but you built up a really nice following quickly. And I think one of the things I enjoy about your account is like, you're just telling people what it's like to play on tour. You're just sharing like, like you're at the Zozo, you're kind of sharing pictures of the awesome food they were serving you. And more importantly, like you're giving a lot of interesting game improvement advice um, which is one of the reasons we wanted to have you on this show. Let's talk about your career. I think you've had kind of like an interesting trajectory. You've been playing pro golf for almost a decade now, but tell us about you know the ups and downs of your career and what it's been like to play golf for a living. Golf is interesting in that, for better or worse, the career itself is really long. And I remember thinking when I first got on PGA Tour, 
playing with guys like Charles Howell or or Phil Mickelson. You know, I literally grew up watching them on TV, and it's cool to be the guys you look up to and actually compete with them. It's not like guys growing up with, well, I guess Tom Brady is the bad example, but most of the time you don't get to kind of compete with the guys you grew up with. But specifically for my career, I was a decent junior golfer, not great, good enough to play, to get recruited at Cal, but certainly it wasn't a world beater. My high school class of 2011 had Justin Thomas, Jordan Spieth, Patrick Rogers, Oliver Schneiderjans was really good and still is. You know, I had a super stacked high school class, so I was kind of a little behind those guys. And I ended up having a really good college career and was able to use that and got my PGA Tour card fairly quickly in about a year and a half. My PGA Tour career is another up and down career. Well, yeah, I've been looking at it and like, first of all, like congrats on the year you just had. You finished 79th in the FedEx. You know, I mean, you played 32 times, which you must be exhausted. But yeah, it seems like you came out and you kept your card for a few years and then you broke through and you won at the John Deere. But that was 2018, right? Correct. Yeah. And what did that feel like at that moment? I mean, it looks, you know, after that, you kind of went backwards, obviously, and then you've come back again. What was that like to win and then not probably perform the way you thought you were? What, what did you think was going to happen after you win? And what was it like after you won? It's, you know, it's such a high, right? It's a dream of yours that you've had since you were a kid. And looking back on it, I started the year of 2018 pretty poorly. I was missing a lot of cuts. Didn't have very many high finishes. And... I was looking to gain some momentum and just try and keep my card at that point. I ended up switching coaches maybe three weeks before that tournament at the Deer. You know, I thought I made the correct change. I thought I won by eight, which is not a small margin on the PGA Tour <laughs> by any stretch. And you set the scoring record too there, right? Yeah. Would you shoot like eight, 28? I think it was 27 under, I want to say. Yeah, set the scoring record. And, you know, I thought this is it. I hit it great that week. And I thought this was going to lead to even more and, and more, maybe contending in majors, playing in more majors. But that certainly did not happen. Didn't come close to that. The coach I was with at the time, John Tillery, helped me win. But some of the things that we worked on wasn't ideal, I guess. And when you're trying to make long-term changes and while trying to play PGA Tour golf, it's a really tough scenario and just led to, ended up digging the hole even deeper and deeper, it seemed like, for a two, three-year stretch there. What are your thoughts on making swing changes as a PGA Tour? Because you're obviously quite technically savvy. You understand the swing, and but you're talking there about making changes and kind of digging yourself into a hole. What's your philosophy on on that now? Because there's obviously this push. You want to improve. You want to get better. But you also don't want to ruin what you already have, what got you there. So it's kind of this tough balance to reach. Yeah, it's a balance, right? You want to make certain improvements during the year, for sure. Because, you know, you bang balls for hours every day, you're going to have some suboptimal habits or some bad habits, and you want to fix those and 
if you have a coach with kind of a long-term plan, you want to move along that, along that plan for your swing. But it's such a balance because you want to play well and keeping your card on the PGA Tour isn't easy unless you're kind of the top 50 in the world guy that kind of is always up there. And it's a tough decision whether you want to kind of make the band-aid change or do you want to make a full lasting change. And, you know, that just comes with lots of talking with your coach and see how you started in the year and what your status is and, and all. And do you have two or three weeks maybe off just because of your schedule and you use that time to make a bit more of a long-term change? Or are you in the middle of a three or four week stretch where at that point you should probably just be trying to score the best you can at that point? So what do you think changed? Because I'm looking at your record and you definitely struggled after you won. There were three seasons. I missed every cut known to man for about (laughs) two or three years there. That's the unbelievable part to me is because you had to go back, you know, you had your two-year exemption and then you had to go to the Corn Ferry Tour last year, earn your way back on the PGA Tour. And now you finished comfortably to secure your card for the following season. In terms of all of these technical changes, like, do you feel you're at a place now? I know you're working with Sean Foley and you talked about some of the stuff on Twitter that you were working on. Like, do you feel like you're at a point now where you don't need to make those massive changes and you feel comfortable? Is there like a long-term plan in place versus what was going on in 2018 and 19? Certainly. I certainly think the real kind of roots and the foundations are fairly set. I think it's just tweaking here or there. For me, I like having a neutral to maybe slightly open club face at the top of the swing, but it's always a balance of like, is it sometimes like earlier this year in Canada, it got a little too open and I was having a hard time releasing it. And so from there, it took me a few weeks to kind of get it back to neutral. And but like super early and early in this year, Sonia, it ended up getting too closed and so it's it's always a bit of a balance for me to figure out what I need to do. But like I said, those are kind of, those would fall along the minor tweaks and it wouldn't be some wholesale changes that Sean and I would be trying to make. Isn't the PGA Tour really just a competition of face control <laughs> when, you, when it comes down to it? Because like, we're going to bore our, our listeners to death, but we always talk about face control, ground contact, and strike. And you guys have ground contact and strike down. So to me, it seems like at the highest levels, when you remove those variables, it's just who the heck is going to match up their face better on the shots. Do you think about it that way sometimes? Yeah. I mean, Sean always says like the hands are the GPS of the swing and you know you need to make sure you're your hands and in the club face is in a place where you know where where you can play from. It's just weird, like going through some of the swings earlier in the year and how the swing kind of ebbs and flows and the changes it goes through throughout the year. I think many amateurs and I, I fell into this camp as well when I was learning the game think that well, if I get my swing or if I just get my swing into a certain position, then everything's going to be okay. I can play good golf. It's never going to go out of whack. It's always going to be consistent, but that just doesn't happen. You know, you're saying even at your level with the amount you practice, the amount of years that you put into the game, 
even you have to keep constantly maneuvering back and forth, calibrating, because it's going to go off one day for whatever reason. You wake up on the wrong side of the bed, you just got to bring it back. And sometimes, you know, you said it, it takes a few days to get it back. Sometimes it takes a few weeks. Sometimes you hold on to it for a long time. But yeah, it's just, I think that's an interesting philosophy for the listeners to know that you have to, no matter how good you get, keep calibrating your, your own swing and tweaking it. And you know, your, your point about like, if I can get into this certain position or this look, that's not like an idea only held by amateurs. Like PJ Tour pros have that thought all the time. You yeah. see the guys, it's like a chicken and the egg. Like you see guys filming their, like every swing on the range. And it's like, oh, I just need to get it to, to here. And if I can do that, my swing like really falls into place from there. I've kind of learned that like, it's not, I mean, at, at the end of the day, it is about certain positions, but it's also like how you get to those positions, what happens from there. And it's such a big puzzle and balance for that. It's even if you do get to that position, sometimes it just doesn't happen the way you think. And no wonder why amateurs have a really hard time. Like even us tour pros have a really hard time with that. That's one of the things... When you share statistics, and I'm sure you've seen accounts like Lou Stagner, Lou's a good friend of ours, he's been on the show, and it's always eye-opening to recreational players just to understand the variability in your game, like whether it's a scoring thing or how how much discomfort you could feel in your swing from week to week. Obviously, it's relative to your skill level, but talk a little bit more about that. You've played 32 times this year, and how differently did you feel in different parts of the season where it's like I'm standing over the ball and feeling comfortable or, or sometimes maybe you're just guessing? You know, walk us through just the roller coaster of scoring and, and comfort in your golf swing and game in general, what it's like. The level of comfort, it's really hard to find kind of that freeing or that sense of confidence or anything along that realm on the PGA Tour. Like we're playing for our job we're we're playing at a pretty tough golf course you know we're playing for a lot of money and and stuff that we've worked years and years it's just a tough place to really find a lot of comfort i think for us as tour pros and you have good days and you have bad days i think the key is to really not run away from that discomfort it's not really about at least for me, it's not about trying to lie to yourself that like, no, I feel good. I feel I'm fine. Like I can do this. It's not about that. It's more about, it's totally normal to be nervous or anxious during a final round where you're close to the lead or guys this week playing for their jobs for next year, playing for their cards. Like you tell a guy like, oh no, just go out there and play three. Even though your next year's schedule and jobs are about, like, that's just not, that's not going to be possible. But, you know, I think what you can do is accept that you're going to be nervous and not cling on to some of those negative thoughts. And throughout the year, you have times where you you feel great and you feel bad. But, you know, I've played plenty of rounds where I've played bad when I'm comfortable. And there's plenty of rounds when I've played good when I'm anxious the entire time. So you can't freak out no matter what what mental state you're in. You just got to hopefully stay in the present and try and hit the best shots to the best of your ability. Love it. 
it's cool to hear you say you, you just posted on Twitter. I think it was over the last two days. You kind of talked about what it was like being in the lead at the John Deere when you won. You didn't sleep much. I think you said you slept three or four hours. You're sitting in your hotel room thinking about it. And then the day of actually playing the event, you were quite honest with the fact that you were nervous all day and, and you tried your best. But I always ask this to whatever level of player. Obviously, we want to hear from some of the best, but there's not much you can do, but there's a few things we can hang on to. So over the years, like you've battled back from like the abyss professionally, like you played for your life back on the Corn Ferry Tour and you're back on the tour again. And what are some of the things that help you deal with all these horrible thoughts that show up? Because we can't prevent them, right? Like they're going to show up. We're human. Like we can't stop them from happening. In your experience, like what has comforted you as these arise on the course? I think it seems like a lot of amateurs think that us tour pros play with supreme confidence. And like, (laughs) I totally get it. Like, why wouldn't you? You're literally the best in the world at golf. If you're not confident, like who in the world would be? But, you know, like I said, we have so much on the line in our heads, right? In our heads. For me, when I was in the abyss, Unfortunately, I can I feel like I can confidently say it. I've been as anxious on the golf course as almost anybody has ever been on a golf course playing tournaments. And I remember like wearing a whoop band during COVID because that was a way for some guys to find out whether they had COVID or not. Anyway, the heart rate spikes were pretty crazy and it looked like I was doing like a full on workout. What was your peak heart rate out of curiosity? I don't remember... I don't wear the band anymore, so I, I wouldn't be able to tell you. But I remember like the whoop. I don't know how accurate it is, but I remember reading the calories burned. And it was like, it would be like 2,500 uh, <laughs> during a, a round of golf. You were in like zone four or five cardio, was, probably like uh, 145, yeah. 150 beats. <laughs> sprinting around the golf course. Exactly. It, was, it looked as if I was sprinting. I was playing speed golf and sprinting the entire <laughs> time. What... I've learned is not, I think the biggest thing for me is to not be afraid of my own thoughts. It's the brain, really the brain is just trying to survive. And when it comes to really trying to manage stressful situations, which I'm going to be in, it's the brain is just trying to survive and it's going to go to the worst case scenarios more times than not. And that is a totally normal thing. And, you know, I'm sure anyone that has played golf sets up to the golf ball. And it's like right before they pull the trigger, it's like they have like a negative thought or like, oh, don't don't hit it there. Or what if the ball does this? And before I used to be like, oh, no, I shouldn't be having those thoughts. Like, holy crap, like, what do I do? It's It's kind of funny, like, It's the thoughts about your thoughts that are also really important. Like I said, you can't be having like a bad reaction to those thoughts because that makes it linger way much more. I think a good way I heard someone talk about it, it's like a bad smell that comes up. You just have sooner or later, it's going to pass. But the more you think about that bad smell, it's going to linger even longer. So you just like a bad smell, just, just let it pass. Maybe get in a couple like mindful breaths or focus on your breathing, which is, I think, the best way to try and stay in the present. And like I said, you're going to face some anxiety here and there, and you're going to hit some 
good and bad shots from those moments, but you just can't let it freak you out in any way, which I did in the past and do less of now. It's very reinforcing to hear that because I feel like most athletes and performers eventually figure this out on some level. We were just talking a prior podcast we had with a coach, Carl Morris, who's worked with a lot of major champions. And the thought he described is like, don't fire the second arrow, which was just the same thing you said. It's like, it's the reaction to your initial reaction that's almost worse when you get like angry at yourself for feeling nervous or anything like that. And he, right, right. that was a great way to say is when you fire that second arrow, it's tough. And I, I compete a lot myself and I've have crazy, I've told everyone who listens to this show, like in amateur events, whatever it is, I have ridiculous stuff that goes through my head. And yeah, you just kind of have to like live with it. You don't have a choice. And if you sit there with like this battle back and forth, then you're just going to make it worse. But it's very cool for you to be honest about that and say that because I still think even the golfer who tees it up on a Saturday morning with their buddies, like they still feel the same pressure you might feel on the first tee at a PGA Tour event. Like it's that real to them and it's it's hard to deal with sometimes. 100%. It's great that you went through the myth of that we have to be confident as well. You know, there's a myth in pop psychology, I suppose, that you have to stand over the golf ball and just be brimming with confidence and that if you're not, you're going to hit bad shots. And as you've talked about and I've experienced this myself as well is that I've hit so many good shots where I've stood over the ball thinking I have no idea where this is going. And <laughs> likewise, I've hit so many bad shots while I've stood over it thinking I'm nailing this down the center. Like there's nothing in my mind but absolute pure fairway and then I spray it out right. So working towards confidence is a, a certain goal, but we can all play good golf with horrible thoughts in our head as well. And I think that it's, the thing is, it's so easy after a bad shot to say, oh, I was not confident over that ball. Because we only remember those ones, right? We hit the bad shot and then we instantly look for that reason. Oh, I felt crappy over that one. But we forget the ones that we felt crappy on and piped it down the center. You know, those ones don't, we're not looking for a reason for the bad shot then. So I think, you know, confidence is kind of overrated. I'm glad you've you've talked about this because so many amateurs, even some guys that I play with, they say that, well, if I can just feel confident over it, then I'm going to, I'm going to hit every shot good. And just like the positions thing, right? You can hit certain positions and still hit it off the planet. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like, you know, I had this for a long time where, I'm always, I was afraid for me, the issues were with the driver and specifically the foul ball to the right for me. And it's like, I'm just waiting for that foul ball to happen. It's like, when's it coming? When's it coming? And I might play the entire day without hitting one, but as soon as the next one comes, like, see, there it was, there's the foul ball. And it's just a terrible mental state to be in where I've hit plenty of good ones and bad ones from you know, negative thoughts going inside my head. You just kind of let it pass, hopefully, and move on to the next shot. That's all you can do. So on your account, you are interacting with tons of people. You were actually, uh, when I just logged in here, you were actually giving our friend Michael Hutchinson, we call him Hutch, you were giving him some uh, swing advice. So you're spending a lot of your time, which is awesome, like helping golfers with what you know. So you play in pro-ams all the time. You're around regular golfers. Like, what is it that you see? Like, what are some of the big things that you believe move the needle 
And that's what Adam and I obsess about. What are you seeing and like, what are you trying to help people with? I know you talk about swing technique a lot. It could be anything, practice habits. Like what are the big ones that come to mind that you're trying to help people with? Well, I mean, specifically in programs, it's difficult because it's literally during the round. And my job is to make sure they have a good time and answer some questions or tell some stories. And I kind of learned my lesson like <laughs> this one time while I was playing the Wells Fargo, not this year, this is a long time ago. I was on the practice chipping area on Wednesday. And this guy was just this old guy that was chipping so bad. I mean, he was sculling, duffing. You could every miss in the book, he was having such a hard time. And I was 10 yards away from him. And I just watched him hit 10 terrible chips. And I was like, I usually don't do it. But I was like, I'm going to go help this guy. Let me help you. (laughs) Let me help. Like this guy is it's just like, it's not even like a flop shot. It's just like a basic chip where he just couldn't figure it out. So I go up to him. I was like, hey, sir, would you want a little help with your chipping? And the guy looks at me and I gives me a quick scan. He goes, no, I'm good. Thanks. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> that's, sho- that's shocking because most and people would be like, I mean, you get a tour player helping you. I mean, they listen to a guy at the range. I mean, to be fair, like maybe he thought like I was just another amateur participant. Like I was in <laughs> golf shirt and shorts, like it, I mean, whatever. But I just, I remember Patton Kazire was walking to the side and saw the whole thing and he was on the floor laughing. <laughs> <laughs> and I just stood there in shock for like 30 seconds. I was like, oh, okay, have a good day. Right. And, and have I a good one. Back. Enjoy the, enjoy the yips. Aside from the unsolicited offers, I'm more interested, like, what are you noticing, like, when you play with regular golfers where you're like, this is the stuff that's holding them back? Well, most of the time, it's just the over-the-top move, right? That is the most prominent mistake that every amateur makes. And I just personally think it's due to a pretty poor backswing. It's usually... A lack of hip turn and a lack of shoulder turn. It's usually they just pick it up and and then from there they from there they turn. And when you just pick it up and then turn, it goes straight over the top. So on once in a blue moon, I'll have people send swing videos and I'll take a look and eighty percent is just to try to get them to turn a bit more on the backswing so that they can go less over the top. It's tough because golf is so individual. And I try to kind of keep the lowest common denominator to help as many people as I can. But it's tough. These guys, they maybe they might hear my advice, hit a few balls on the range the next day. And if it doesn't work, they'll just kind of abandon it, which I totally get. It's tough. I, I just hope they would focus more on the backswing than, than anything else, because that, that's kind of where it all, where it all starts. Is more of your passion on, like, it seems like you've studied the golf swing quite a bit. Is that where your passion lies in improvement? Is it, is it about like figuring out the puzzle of the swing? We are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. Sweet Spot listeners, we are back with an exclusive offer from one of my favorite clothing brands, Viore. I've been wearing Viore for years. I've got their shorts, Sunday joggers, t-shirts, button downs. I've become a little obsessed with this brand, and I'm pretty sure you are not going to find more comfortable material. I guarantee it. So if you are sick and tired of your old workout gear and you want a new perspective on performance apparel, I recommend checking them out. 
Everything they make is incredibly versatile. You can run, lift weights, swim, do yoga, even play golf. Or like me, I wear some of their stuff out to dinner for weekend errands or mostly just lounging around the house. So if you want to give Viore a shot, we are going to give you a 20% off discount off your first purchase and you're going to get free shipping on anything over $75 with free returns. Go to viore.com, that's spelled V-U-O-R-I.com forward slash sweet spot to get your 20% off coupon. One more time, that's viore.com forward slash sweet spot. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G shoes, which is their first big release of 2024, and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. Not necessarily for me, like, I think I am decently knowledgeable. I, I don't consider myself like a total swing expert, like there are plenty of others, but through my ups and downs in my career, because I was on the PGA Tour, I was able to spend a lot of time with top, whatever your top coach. I've probably spent some time through those times. I was kind of able to figure out pieces of the golf swing, what works, what doesn't at least for me, but I think what I went through, a lot of people have gone through. So just learning a little bit here and there from each coach has helped me gain a little bit more of an understanding than I had even five or six years ago. I'm talking about common denominators. You know, our, our podcast, we focus on what we call the big three, which is ground contact. So reducing fat and thins, face contact, so finding the center of the face, not too toey or healy, and then controlling that face direction. Those are our big three kind of common denominators, and the swing is just a tool to get there. I noticed you posted a picture of Zalatoris and Hovland, and you were talking about the difference in face angles as well. And you know that's part of our philosophy is that there's there are many ways to get it done. Some players have more open faces, some have more closed faces. How does that fit into your philosophy on the swing or what you understand about the golf swing? I think, you know, so many people talk about like the fundamentals of golf and like, what are the fundamentals and go back to your fundamentals. But the more and more I see guys on the PGA Tour, I kind of question, are there real fundamentals of the golf swing? Other than the fact that like, you need two hands on the club and, you know, like the true, true basic principles of just movement but like you know i see a good friend of mine see kim you should if you saw his left hand grip you'd think like how in the world could he ever release it from there because 
it is so weak. People talk about seeing like a couple of knuckles off your left hand. He would see his calluses on, on you know, hands as, as opposed to like his knuckles. It's so weak. But then there's guys like Zach Johnson. I, I think he has a pretty strong grip. The degree of separation between Siu Kim and Zach Johnson's grip, is, it's so massive. And like you mentioned with Will Zalatoris and Victor Hovland, polar opposite and wrist angles at the top. And so it's just, it's really difficult because like I said, it's so individualized. And some of the work Sean and I did was we looked at, well, I guess he looked at some of my swings growing up when I was you know, 18, 19 years old, because, you know, his theory is that the motions you make when you're a kid, especially going through puberty, those are really ingrained into your kind of your swing DNA. And if you kind of, you know, you can make changes along with that, but if you really make big changes and go too far away from that, it gets really hard on, on your brain and body to go along with that new swing. You posted something recently with the work you're doing with Sean where you were talking about he was asking you to complete a task. I believe it was like hitting a draw to accomplish certain technical swing points he wanted you to hit, which was music to my ears because we love that type of that self-organization stuff. That's the way you know Adam works directly with golfers on the swing, and that's how he teaches. Can you talk a little bit about that where, again, you are someone who knows a lot about technique and the technical checkpoints in the golf swing and how they work together. But you were doing this exercise with your coach where he was like, I just want you to hit a draw here and that'll get me to accomplish this task for your movement. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. You know, it wasn't like just the ball flight. It's, you know, I want you to release it more. And so let's work on that with the draw. And I want you to have better weight shift going back. So I want you to feel that and hit the high draw. So it, it's it's a definite connection, right? It's not just, I can hit a draw a million different ways. I can just close the place address and just kind of hit it and it'll draw. And one of the cool things with Sean is he is very technical, but he distills it down to very simple portions to where I can digest it easily. And he's never taken a video and be like, that's the position I want you in exactly. Like at key five, I want you to be here. It's more like, okay, he tries to make it an entire kind of movement where it's, I want you a bit more here. And and the cool thing with him is at the end of the day, he knows a lot about the golf swing, but it, you know, my body might react a little differently to what he suggests. So early when I started working with him, we tried a couple different things and was like, no, that's not reacting exactly the way I thought. So we altered it slightly here and there. And so along with that ball flight, it's, I remember, I guess this is a little sidetrack, but I remember after two months working with him, I Monday qualified for the Safeway Open. I played well enough to get into the event. So my swing is in a decent spot. And this was still kind of in the transition phase where I was kind of in between, um, two different styles of swings and I get to the tournament and I'm still, I'm really anxious because it's like, Oh wow. Like I think I'm on a better track and whatnot. And he's like, I've been hitting a lot of draws, but he's like, I, I think I want to go back to the fade. And I ended up missing the cut by a million. And he calls me after <laughs> and he calls me after he goes, Michael, he goes, listen, he goes, I don't want you hitting a cut for an entire year. 
the entire <laughs> year, unless you're behind a tree, don't hit a cut. And I was like, I understood. And actually, even now, I don't think I hit a cut just because my swing just works so much better with the draw because I, I need some active hand releasing and my swing just works better with that in-to-out draw motion. And so, you know, in the last year and a half, I can probably, it's under a hundred golf balls of cuts I've, I've hit. Considering how many shots I hit, that's a very small number. We love hearing that. <laughs> and everyone who listens to this show will love it. Just because it's so interesting to know that someone at your level, you just made yourself a ton of money this year, got back into the swing of things. And you're telling everyone that you did that hitting draws the whole time. I mean, do you feel like when you stand over the ball with your driver or your irons or even wedge shots that you're doing anything entirely that different? Like, oh, there's a back left pin. I'm going to do this or, you know, meaning like how often are you deviating from your stock pattern or feeling like you have to do something different? Or is it more of kind of just doing the same pattern that you're comfortable with? It's mostly of the same pattern. I would say the only time where I feel like I have to or want to make real changes in my swing or pattern is when it gets really windy and it's just to keep the ball really low. If it's a random Thursday when it's calm, it doesn't really matter if the pin's right or left. I'll probably make my kind of driver driving range motion and obviously the speeds might change just for distance control wise but the overall swing i try to basically do the same thing over and over again and when you we've done an episode on distance control and i always love to hear how other how golfers do this so you know at your level you're so good at controlling distance like I, I don't love regular golfers to think oh i need to dial this down six yards because we know what's going to happen but i'm just curious better players always feel like they're in between clubs or you're like oh four away and you're not, you never have that perfect number so how do you internally feel like when you need to dial down distance or you have to dial it up or do you do that that often it's interesting because i've throughout the year it might change a little bit here and there i remember earlier in the year i felt comfortable with gripping down on it a bit to cut distance. I don't remember exactly when, but at a certain point, it didn't feel as comfortable. But most of the time, I'll just take it back a little shorter. It's more of like an internal feeling of hitting it a little smoother for five yards. And I have an internal kind of sense of like, okay, I want to take 10 yards off and I'll hit my 10 yard off swing. That's mainly through working with TrackMan and, and distance control and trying to dial in with that. But that's just one way. Like, I remember I was talking to Colin Morikawa, and I asked him, like, hey, how, how do you take distance off? And for him, it's he has his stock cut shot. If he wants to take five yards off, he aims a little bit more left and just plays a bigger cut. And if it's, like, 10 yards, he aims even more left and just hits a bigger cut. You know, for him, it's, he, like, personifies just hitting that one stock shot the entire time where you know even if it's like a tucked tucked left pin it doesn't matter he'll just start it a little left of it and just cut it back so there are plenty of different ways to do it you know for the amateurs they they i hope they try a few different things rather than just beating balls with no real reason or thought well i i always 
a rallying call a lot of the time is I first want them to prove to themselves they can actually hit at the distance they think they can before they start taking it off because we know where most of their misses are. They're not long. <laughs> but that is cool to hear just because it is, you know, for higher level players, like you have to figure out what is working. And as you said, it might change throughout the season. So that's interesting to hear. We love talking about practice. Adam wrote an awesome book about practice. If you had to classify, I mean, you're beating balls forever. Do you do a lot of repetitive block practice? Do you play games? Like talk us through like your philosophy on practice at your level, like what you're doing. It's it's changed throughout the years. I used to hit a lot of golf balls back in my junior days and then my college days and even up to my pro days. But I realized the better you become, the less useful block practice becomes. So I, for the last two years, I've really cut down on how many, how many range balls I hit. For me, it's I have a couple of drills that I, I've always done with Sean. And it's usually one of them is the pause drill where I go to the backswing, I pause and hit. And that kind of helps me accentuate releasing it, you know, pretty hard and early from the, from the top and kind of helps me with my tempo as well. I'll hit balls. 20 to 40 minutes. It's pretty rare that I hit balls for over an hour unless I'm doing some distance control work or some combine work on the track man. And I just go straight to the golf course. I realize that it's like the range and, and the course and then tournament. It's like they're almost like three different sports. It's a completely different game. And as soon as I feel my brain start to turn off or lose interest is that's when I know I need to do something else. I think for you're like a 20 handicap, you know, block practice is probably pretty good and you probably need to do a little bit. But for a guy like me, I go straight to the golf course. I try and play two ball worst ball as much as I can to kind of accentuate that pressure. I sometimes end up getting lazy on the golf course too. And I just hit a bunch of shots there, but at least there I, I have a way more sense of, I care more about where the golf balls end up instead of on a big range. It's almost like there's two different problems, right? There's there's building a skill set that you have, but then there's transferring it to those different contexts, like you said. Like you can stand on the range and ping it on the flag over and over and over and just make barely any mistakes. Whereas then your ability to take that skill and transfer it onto the course is going to be a, a big drop off, and then there's a big drop off again when you go onto the into a big tournament and there's more context involved, more nerves, more emotions. So, yeah, I mean, for our listeners there, it's, you know, figuring out which problem you have really. What's your, if your range game is awful, then it's very likely your, your on course game is not going to be great. Like if you can't, if your combine score on a track man is like a 30, you're not going to be going out and shooting level par really. But at your level, it's all about, you know, putting yourself in that situation more often because you know the skills there. It's like, how do I draw it out of me? Yeah, it's it's maybe like it's almost not thinking I'm taking my range to the golf course. It's more trying to take the tournament conditions to the practice. Maybe is that sound a little practice like you like, play, play like you practice. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Right. Any type of practice where it actually means something to you. I remember some of the best things I ever did in college was we had you know, five or six really competitive guys. And we 
played, I can say this now, we played a bunch of like little money games on the short game. That's all we did because our range wasn't very good. It was blowing 40 miles per hour right to left the entire time, every day. <laughs> and so golf balls weren't that good. So we'd hit balls for like, you know, 40, 30 minutes. Then we go straight to the short game area and it goes, all right, like, who wants to play? And there's usually at least three or four guys that were willing. And that's probably the biggest thing that I miss from college is having those like natural practice partners where you hit so many more shots that, that mean something to you. And that's just so much, such a better way to practice than hitting golf balls with, with like a robot with, with no thinking at all. Do you have a, uh, I know you said before we hit the record button, you live in Dallas. Do you have like a group? I know there's a ton of pro golfers in Dallas. Like, do you have a regular group of players that you like kind of spar against down there? Once in a while, to be honest, I'm not like the biggest of grinders, like Scotty is or anyone like that. We'll get some games here and there, but I hate waiting behind slow amateurs. And so <laughs> I go to the Really? How do you make it on the PGA oh, Tour? You gosh. guys have like five and a half hour rounds sometimes. Yeah, that's that's a pet peeve of mine. Like That's like a Sunday afternoon at the municipal course. Come on now. You show me amateurs that play fast in the program and I will... The programs get backed up because amateurs take so long and, and, and we get so much crap about slow play. And there's <laughs> reasons for that. But So I end up going to the golf course kind of late in the afternoon and kind of do my work and get out of there. Um, so that puts a time constraint on because certain guys like going out there super early. I don't have too many games, but once in a while. Do you feel like you've said you're someone who doesn't like to beat balls and... I'm sure if you show up to any event, you're going to see certain guys just hitting, hitting, hitting. In your opinion, do you think that's just to kind of like make themselves feel better? Just being like, I am a tour player. I have all this time. Like, I better be out here hitting 300 balls versus like, do you feel like it's actually moving the needle in their game? I'm just curious. I don't know if we ever know these things for sure. Certainly. I think before the tournament begins, I kind of get it. I think the guys that after the round, they hit balls for like over like 20, 30 minutes. I think from that point, they're just wasting time. And, and from that point on, they are just trying to make themselves feel better about the next day and the upcoming days. It's, it's you know, some guys literally use it for that purpose where they just want to kind of relax a little bit by hitting golf balls. Yeah, I feel like it's kind of like therapy for some people. I mean, I personally think there are better ways to do that other than just <laughs> banging golf balls you know after your round but certainly i think certain practice sessions where you only have a certain amount of brain power and focus time in a day i think and especially after the round where i don't know about others but i feel pretty mentally kind of tired like i, I don't know how much meaningful practice can be done afterwards we love it I feel the same way even at the point and where I am in golf. Like I, I get bored after like 30, 40 minutes of hitting balls. It's just, I, I'd rather be playing too. So it, it's very cool and interesting to hear you say that. Another thing that I'm always curious about. So you finished 79th on the money list this year. So you're, you're quite good. Are there guys you play with when you play against guys and you don't have to answer this honestly, if you don't want to, you can pass, but I'm just curious to hear from your perspective, like what's the difference between the players who are going to finish top 10, 20, 30 and like you right now? Like, do you look at some of them and you're like, I can't do that? Or are you just being like, well, I think I can. It's just a matter of like, I'm not there yet. 
I'm just wondering, like, from your perspective, what's the difference? Is it physical? Is it mental? Is it everything? Like, what's your best guess? Well, I think there's two different kind of questions and answers there. Like, what's the difference? Like, John Rahm hits the golf ball just much better. I mean, not much, much better, but, you know, he hits it better than I do. At the end of the day, it's like a strokes gain statistical thing, right? Over the course of a year, he gains more shots with this driver, with whatever club throughout the year. But also, like, I don't have to beat him every day on the PGA Tour. Hopefully, when I'm one win a year is an incredible career. And the thought process of me, it's like, I know at my best, I've proven it to myself that, like, my best is good enough to win on the PGA Tour. And my thinking is more like, yeah, John Rahm over his career or Rory or whoever you want to put like over the, his career has been better, but on a Sunday tournament, his odds are certainly going to be better than mine. And every projection in the world might say that, but it also doesn't mean it doesn't guarantee that doesn't guarantee anything. I'm just one good day is all it takes at that point on, on a Sunday. And so it's not like, it's not like I have to, like I said, it's not like I have to beat him every day, every round, every hole. I just have to beat him or certain guys at, at a tournament. If I'm close to the lead, I'm playing some really good golf. So it's not in my mind all the time, I would say. Well, that's why I think it's such a, I don't know if the word's strange, but what you guys do for a living and what you need to keep your card. Like when you look at someone's, you know, if you look like a random PJ Tour golfer who keeps their card, like it's really like five, six weeks a year, they have to play like really well. It's so skewed for the top tens and the top fives. And that could like make your year. And then, yeah, you're going to miss some cuts and have a bunch of T45s. But it's it's such a lopsided for a lot of players that, you know, I think we get distorted as fans we're seeing like scotty scheffler and it's like oh god this guy's like playing well every week and it's like that's not yeah that that's like a to make it it's this i'm wondering how hard that is mentally like knowing like i can be out here for 30 weeks and i only need five or six really good ones and the rest ones like i'm gonna kind of like be missing cuts and other stuff i know you want to do better than that but isn't that kind of like the reality to keep your card right you know everything has a positive side negative side you realize you can have 22 terrible tournaments but if you have one or two great ones that will wipe off any of the 22 other tournaments the thing on like social media and what amateurs you know sometimes the average fan struggles to realize it's like they discount like the top five top 10 like it's just nothing and (laughs) that kind of frustrates me because i just want to tell them do you understand how hard it is to have a top 10 on the pga tour like I understand Sky Scheffler averages eighth place this year. I understand, but I wish you could understand how incredible of a season that is where the guy like does not finish outside the top 10, like almost ever. And Rory, like, oh, you know, that guy choked. He finishes, he can't win. Like the difference between winning a tournament and especially a major where you only have four chances in a year, the difference between like a top between like an eighth place and a first place that's probably like two or three shots and just from a statistical side like we hit what 260 shots maybe during if we win or something like that that's like 
three out of like 260 or 70 shots. That's such a small, that's such a tiny margin for error. And I wish people would appreciate me, like who had not many top tens. Like I wish they would appreciate some of the, just the awesome golf that they, the fact that they put themselves in that position every week is pretty incredible. I think if more players, one of my beliefs is that I think if more golfers played stroke play tournaments and really understood like the island you're on, like I play a ton of top amateur events around my area. I got into the US Mid-Am. It's hard like for me to get a top 10 in these events. It's like unbelievably hard. Like I can't believe how hard it is. And I think if more people kind of put themselves under the fire, they would understand that. Like I, that's why like I can't fathom even at like the little level I play at what you guys have to endure to get that top five or top 10. Like it's crazy. But unfortunately, like the way golf is portrayed, like most sports, it's about the superstars and the top performers. And it's, you know, a lot of it's just like the way the broadcasts are, we're going to be showing the best players who are playing the best at the moment. And what Tiger did, it's just, it's skewed in the opposite direction where it's like very, very, the expectations are incredibly mismanaged. So (laughs) I'm glad you said that too, because I can't fathom how hard that is. It's crazy. Unfortunately, Tiger stewed every statistical analysis. He sure did. Yeah. Have you ever gotten to play around Tiger? Unfortunately, I I mean, I've played tournaments when he was in the field, but I never was too close. When he kind of started coming back, I was playing my worst, so we never really saw too much of each other. I would see how different the crowds were at times at the tournament. It, it's like a legitimate ghost town at times. If he, <laughs> like, I remember Corey Pines one year where he missed the cut and there were so many people Thursday, Friday watching his group. And you can tell a bit more there because, because you have two courses, everyone tees off around the same time. So the crowd shows up around the same time. And I remember like there being so much attention when Tiger was teeing off and then he missed the cut. And it was a legitimate ghost town on the weekend. It was crazy. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> I've got a life philosophy question on happiness for you. So, I mean, with most of us... Oh, man, Adam loves to get philosophical. We're at that I'm part of the episode. I'm wondering if he thinks about these things. So, I mean, most of us are stuck at desk jobs, looking out the window, dreaming for the, the weekend round of golf. Do you realize that you're living the dream that most people have? Or is there, you know, I suppose there's two questions here. So what do you enjoy about tour life? Do you realize that you know, you're know you going through a really amazing thing right now, however good or bad you play? And what, what is also hard about tour life or difficult that you think that the average person doesn't know about? I certainly, I think because of the big slump that I went through, I have a much much better appreciation for being able to kind of get back to where I am and certainly am thankful that I have this job. I remember I had a roommate about three or four years ago and, you know, we grew up playing golf together and now he's a CPA now. I remember this is maybe my second or third year on tour, like kind of complaining about certain aspect of the PGA Tour job. And he kind of just looked at me and said, well, we can trade jobs any anytime you want. And at that point, I had nothing to say. So I was like, yeah, yeah, I, sh- I probably shouldn't complain. I play a game for a living and I do very well financially. Certain times where I am kind of in shock at, you know, I get a text 
of how much money you earn, how much FedEx Cup points you earn and certain stuff like that. And it's just like, wow, like for a week's work, I made more than people like dream about making in a year or even 10 years. So that's certainly, that's not lost on me for sure. And your question about the part I don't like, it's definitely the amount of days I'm not home. Like I said, I've played 32 tournaments this year and you play maybe I played even more the year before because I was I played a full corn fairy tour season, but I also played a few TJ tour tournaments that I got into. And so, you know, that's at least 30 to 35 weeks a year that I'm gone plus an extra couple for sponsor stuff or anything like that. So it's not a lot of time home, which is why we love, I certainly appreciate the off season a ton because I'm able to actually stay in one place for a while. What are some of the cooler things? Well, here's a question for you that probably most people want to know. Let's say you like, you know, you get your top 10, whatever happens. Like how quickly, what are they just like direct deposit the money you like a few days later? Like how does the payment work? <laughs> I've never heard the answer to this. So Wednesday direct deposit, Wednesday morning. Nice. So it's just like you finish and then a few days later, boom, right in your account. Yeah. Yeah. I do remember right after I won the deer, I like wake, woke up early, like Wednesday morning. Just to kind of <laughs> Did refreshing. the wire hit? <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Do you feel, here's another life philosophical question for you, because I enjoy these too. I'm just like Adam. When you won and you got that big... Unfortunately, they're not big checks anymore. It's cooler when you got the big check probably back in the day. They but... had the big check, but I, I don't know what happened to it. I took oh. some photo with it, but I, I never it's kept gone? it. It's or... gone? Oh, that's I don't know. I, I wish I would have kept it. I would, actually, I should have asked for it. Yeah. Well, you were whisked open to, you were whisked away to the open, right? When you win the John Deere, you go straight to the play in the open, right? Yeah, yeah. Do you feel like, oh, I'm a new person, like I got all this money, I'm a PGA Tour winner. In the in the weeks and months that followed, was your life significantly different? Because you always hear stuff like this, not that you won the lottery, you worked your butt off for that. But there's like these events in life that we like dream about and then they come to pass. And like, was it everything you thought it was going to be? That's a good question. I remember it more as a massive stress reliever more than anything, to be honest. I was fighting for my card. I was maybe like 170th, 160th heading into that week. I was trying to keep my job for next year. I was trying to keep my card. It's almost a shock to me of how not different I felt. Like the year after, I have that two-year exemption in my pocket. Like no matter how bad I played today or this round, I know that I'm going to have my card for next year. And you think that would free me up a ton. But it's like, no, I still want to do really well. I still don't want to hit this ball out of bounds. I still want to hit this ball desperately into the fairway. And, you know, it's all those cues don't go as quickly away as you might think. Interesting. So when you were at the Zozo, you tweeted out, you know, like you were getting like Wagyu beef and sushi and like it looked awesome. Like what are some of the coolest things and perks that you get as a PGA Tour player? For one, it's when you first get on tour, at least on the Corn Ferry Tour or the PGA Tour, I think the access to just the sheer amount of clubs you can get, like if you're a club junkie, like you go into one of those trucks, it's candy land. Are you an equipment junkie? I used to be. It's funny. Like I totally, I used to be like on golf WRX 
all the I was time. just like, about to say that. I'm like, yeah. what's your golf WRX screen name? <laughs> I, I used to be so obsessed with like Scotty Cameron circle tee putters and, <laughs> and what club is X per player using. But as soon as you have free access to all of those things, it kind of drops off pretty quickly for me. It's still really cool, but I'm nowhere near the level of junk club junkie that I used to be. So access to those poor only clubs, which is completely overblown in my opinion. So that's pretty cool. When we travel, the courtesy car thing is just the greatest thing ever. And I truly thank anyone involved with that because we get to the airport, there's someone waiting for you with the car, brand new car. It's usually pretty nice. You can use it for the week and you don't pay anything. There's nothing like that. You come back, the tournament ends, you go to the airport, there's someone waiting to take your car at the airport. Like that's an awesome perk only on the PGA tour, like even on Corn Ferry tours, just rental car and you know, rental cars can yeah, they're not they're I'm not the biggest fan of them. So wherever we go to, we're treated really well. I don't know why. We're just golfers, but the tournament involved, the staff involved, they're they really do care about how we're treated and it's we're very thankful of it for sure. And I guess if you're like a golf course junkie, we, we do play certain awesome courses every year. For the most part, I'll call up a golf course and there'll be some member that is totally fine hosting us at their course. So stuff like that. Do you like a lot of the courses you play on tour? Like, I don't know if you're an architecture buff or anything like that, but, or do you find like courses you would play? I mean, granted, you don't have much off time, but are there courses outside of the tour rota that you enjoy more? For the most part, I think the golf courses, it's a lot based on, does your game fit that course more so than like a total architectural design type thing? But I certainly enjoy Pebble because it's Pebble. And I think I completely fell in love with Lynx Golf when I went over and played Carnoustie the week after I won the deer. Might have to do with like the fact that I'm such on a high from winning the week before, but I remember thinking like, wow, this is the way golf was meant to be played, like on the ground. This is so cool. And I enjoy any type of Lynx golf, certainly more than kind of the bomb and gouge that the PGA Tour is kind of known for. Courses like Colonial, I think everybody enjoys. There are certain courses that everyone prefers over the certain other ones, for sure. I got to play Carnoustie for the first time this year. I played it twice and it was... Wow. You don't want to be in those bunkers. Any other courses in Scotland you get to play? During the tournament, I wish I would like do more, but I'm kind of a golf course, hotel, gym or something like that. I I don't do too much outside of the tournament itself. So I haven't played a. I I don't think I've played a ton over there. Maybe after I retire, I might do like a golf trip. There's a whole world over there. It's unbelievable. (laughs) It's really incredible. I got a question for you. As an amateur golfer or amateur golfers listening, I'm sure they think, I wonder if I could ever compete on tour. So if you <laughs> say you were to have a week, uh, a month off, and you all you were to do is to go around some local munis and play 6,600-yard courses, and you know they're a little bit torn up in an awful condition, what would you be looking to shoot on average during the regular 
course. Like that 6,500. It's probably been a long time since you played something that short. 6,500. You know, the thing is about golf, it's, it's never about your great rounds. It's about your bad rounds. So I don't, it's not like I would shoot 58 every time. But I would probably like average like a, I assume like a 66. But the thing is, I would never, I would probably never shoot like over 70. I think that's like the big difference. It's like pro golf isn't about your best shots. It's actually way more about like your bad and, and terrible shots more than anything. So preach. Yeah. What do you think is the handicap level where someone I always ask this question to a lot of people like what what's the handicap level do you think where someone can like even start thinking about playing professionally I see the debate about that and playing PGA Tour golf is so much more than being a plus four or five handicap at your home course like it's yeah there's a million of those not a million but there's a lot it's way more about adjusting to the golf course you show up to it's about the different sometimes the different techniques that you know maybe like a Bermuda grass requires over some other you know Kikuya grass or something like that. It's about it'd be one thing if he, if the person played like Division One college golf and was used to tournament golf. But I remember I had a parent one time. He goes, "Why do we? Why should my son be playing like tournaments? Like why shouldn't he just be like honing his skills at home?" And, you know, go to Q school because everyone has to go to Q school in the end. And I think he didn't realize, like, you have to learn to play different golf courses, different conditions, adjusting to tournament golf. Because, like we said before, like, as soon as you step on that first tee on Thursday, so much of what you worked on just kind of goes out the window. A lot of the things that you thought were going to work might not work. And tournament golf is just a completely different beast than a shooting a 68 on your home golf course where you feel super comfortable and you know exactly what you're going to do on every hole. I also don't think a lot of quote unquote regular golfers, they see you guys tearing apart a lot of courses on TV. Like, Oh, the winner's shooting 20 under, this is a joke. <laughs> like, I don't think people really understand like how hard these courses actually are. I was at the Memphis event we probably walked by each other a couple of times. I was not there, unfortunately. Oh, you weren't? Oh, no. I thought you were. Oh, I, I didn't miss you then. But I was just around that course. And I was like, this is an effing hard golf course. This is not, guys are going to shoot like five, six, seven under par here. But I'm like, this is over 7,000 yards. Like it's tight off the tee. There's a lot of trouble around the green complexes. It's like nasty Bermuda. Like this is hard. And the greens are like rolling like glass. I'm like, I'd be happy shooting as a plus two handicap. Like I'd be happy shooting like a 76 or a 77 here. Like I felt like I would play great if I did that. When you see it in person like that, it's just like I walk in the course. I'm like, this is freaking hard. <laughs> I think, you know, the pin locations make such a big deal. Like even playing your normal home course. Like if there were like PGA tour pin locations on that golf course, I think people would be really surprised. Like yeah, how different a golf course can play. Yeah. They're pretty much like all tucked pins, all of them. I, you know, <laughs> usually they go to every green and pick up, all right, where are the four hardest pin locations? Yeah. They just put it there. And I know on TV, it seems like there are times when there are funnel pins and just for excitement sake, but yeah, that's one one or two around, if that. 
with that in mind, with cut pins and things like that, I know you talk a lot about stats and strategy. What have you learned more recently, I suppose, in the last few years working with uh, statisticians about strategy that's changed in your philosophy? For one, it's being pretty aggressive off the tee. That's pretty clear. Like, you, if you can hit driver, you probably should be hitting driver. And the closer you get to the green, if you're in the fairway, that's the scoring average is just going to go down. And, you know, I think the concept that I tell this on Twitter all the time, like, no, just hit driver. You should, just, you should hit driver most of the time. But then they'll be like, oh, I don't want to be, you know, in trouble and whatnot. But I think what many, you know, don't understand, it's like, well, hitting the three with the fairway isn't guaranteed. You're hitting almost maybe even a tougher club to hit the pit than the driver. And so, you know, that was kind of an aha moment for me. And also it's, and I'm a tour pro from six iron and six iron and up. I almost shouldn't be looking at the pin location. It's, I should be almost looking middle of the green. And if you, you can, if the pin is like 10 on four left in years past, I would be looking to maybe just play land at pin high 10 on and then maybe like two or three yards to the right. But now it's like, no, no, I should be even more conservative with my targets. Try and just try and hit the green to like 30 or 40 feet and accept the two putt. And what's funny about that is, is that if you took, if we took your six irons that had, Hey Mike, go hit 56 irons and we'll measure that circle. Like that circle will be tighter than just about anyone listening to this show's like pitching wedge or sand wedge. It's interesting to hear you say that. And, you know, another stat that surprised me was, I can't explain it as good as he can, but you'll, you'll get the gist of it. Like from once you, from the rough, once you get past like 110 yards or so, the odds of you making bogey is higher than birdie. So from even like 110 yards out, you should be extremely conservative to the pin because I just think like, I have a wedge in my hand. Of course, I'm going to, you know, try and make birdie. But even for PGA Tour pros, if you're in the rough, it's, you should, you'll be totally fine trying to make par. Definitely sounds like a stagner stat. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I like stats on Twitter anyway, mainly because those are numbers. It's, it's, you know, it's for everyone can see, everyone can use statistical analysis and it's not like a technique thing where, it's biased on certain people's body or anything like that. Yeah, well, it, it's one of the most universal concepts that can genuinely change people's expectations and their strategy. Like in my book, the first part of my book, I just kind of laid it out there with all these like PJ Tour stats on proximity and stuff like that. And everyone's like, oh, I didn't know I was supposed to like play the game this way. And they're not, do- it, it just, so many golfers have been, I don't think misled is the right word. They just assume things about the game that just are not true. And when you can shift that perspective, and that's really what Adam and I try and do on the show all the time, they're like, you know, you just go on the whole golf course with a different perspective. You're not as hard on yourself because some shots that you thought were bad were actually good. You're making better target selections. Like it really can be a game changer for people. I remember like when the strokes gain putting first came out, we would think like a 50-50 putt would be like maybe like 12 
or 14 feet yeah. when it's like eight feet and you're like, eight, eight yeah, feet, for a tour pro. Yeah, yeah for, for, a tour for a tour pro. It's like, no, that can't be right. Yeah. That was like a big, big shock to everyone. I remember. It's interesting that, you know, an average 15 handicap would probably be picking a more aggressive target than you would with a six iron. We're talking about, you know, hitting the six iron, seven nine and go for the middle of the green and they'd be having the seven nine in the hand thinking, well, no, this pin's tuck left. I gotta go straight for it. Yeah, it's, I think it's very valuable to hear you talk about that, being more conservative with your, your targets. So we'll let you go soon, Mike. We don't want to keep you forever, but you're taking a nice break now. This is the middle of November when we're recording this. You're not playing the RSM. You've decided to take a breather before next year. And since you played 32 times, that makes total sense to me. Do you set goals for yourself? You talked a little about this Twitter. Do you envision like next year, like, oh, if I finish top 50, then I'll have achieved my goal. Or you just, just try and say like, I'm going to take care of these five or 10 things every day and every week and hope for the best. Like, how do you, you know, with all the money on the line and all that stuff, like, how do you look forward? Because you've been through a lot. And I also like want to congratulate you for like, that's amazing that you've, kind of you rose you went down and you came back again so it's so cool to see that what's your outlook moving forward i work with a mental coach and he kind of told me to read a book and it was totally about growth mindset over results oriented mindset and this year i'm you know i kind of took that to heart and you know before i i've had years where i've early in the or before the year starts these are my goals and these are what I want to achieve. And, you know, there are certain benefits of that. But, you know, this year I've been more, I've been trying to be a lot more process oriented. And so, you know, my goals are way more along the lines of, you know, I want to take working out during the season way more seriously. And the goal for me is, is to really nail down and Usually my workouts, I do good, like at least until the floor swing and then it gets hot and I'm, I've played like a ton of tournaments already and my workouts tail off and I stop doing way more. I start doing way less. And so, you know, this year, I think there are going to be way more process goals, how I, how I prepare and, and am I doing all the right steps leading up to the tournament? And then from that point on, results it is what it is, but I'm trying to be way more process oriented than results oriented this year. We try and go over this topic a lot. And I've, I just think, I don't know if it's like the way to go for everyone in golf in general, but like, I just think this game, there's always a number attached to everything. And it's so easy to get lured into like, just like, I want my handicap to be X and I've just fleet opposite at no matter what level at your level, a beginner intermediate player. Like it, it's, this game can be that much harder when you're so obsessed with the numbers and yeah i don't really think there is another way like it's nice to have like some external goals to work towards but if you don't have like the internal ones set out you're gonna struggle more i think it's just kind of like a universal concept so it's great to hear you say that adam do you have any closing questions for mike no i think he's answered all of my he questions said it all taken yeah, taken enough of your time learned what you love and hate about the game <laughs> to talk, talk life. I always want to give people this out, not that we've had too many tour players on the show, but like, I know you got sponsors and stuff like that. You want to, you want to plug anyone or thank them for their support. A lot of people listen to this show. So if you ever feel like you want to give a, a plug, you could do that. But we know where people can find you on Twitter. That's, that's where you're doing most of your damage anywhere else. 
No, I think I'm in the process of like negotiating some, or my agent is anyway. So all right, so we won't say anything because yeah, we want we want the numbers to be bigger. He played well this year, so he's not going to plug anyone. Check out my Twitter if you know I post some stories, some golf stuff, and and whatnot. What is your Twitter handle? Ball, that'd be great. What is your Twitter handle for the people? Do you even it's know a it? Great question. <laughs> he doesn't even know it. It's Mike underscore Kim seven one four. I mean, the algorithm's blowing you up. So whoever's interested on golf right now on Twitter, like they're gonna they're gonna find you. I hope so. Awesome. Well, hey, appreciate your time. I know you're trying to relax and rest in the off season, so we'll let you get back to that. But thank you so much for taking the time out of your off season to do this with us, and uh, appreciate it. Anytime. I enjoyed it. Well, we'll be rooting for you, and I know the Sweet Spot fans will be rooting for you now. Adam, where can everyone find you? AdamYoungGolf.com forward slash hats, H-A-C-K-S. That's where you get a free ebook of mine. John, where can people find you? You can find me everywhere. I'm like the wind. I'm everywhere. No, just check out the four foundations of golf, my book. Appreciate it. Thanks for everyone's questions and your feedback, your support, and we will see you next time with a new episode.